this is Sam Stone with another installment of Dynamic Duos, the official CBR podcast. This week, I'm here with Dave Maz and, and Patrick Lay, and we're talking about their uh, upcoming original graphic novel, Death Strikes, The Emperor of Atlantis, out in bookstores on January 23rd and in comic shops on January 24th, published by Dark Horse Comics through the Burger Books line. Guys, thanks for sitting down and talking with me this afternoon. Well, I'm just going to start with a uh, uh, hello, hello. <laughs> Patrick, what's your version? Uh, hello, hello. Hello, uh, hello. You, yeah, uh, you got we're talking an opera book, so we got to do that opera intro. I yeah. To, yeah, I should have taken a Ricola before uh, before we got into it. Sam, you <laughs> want to take a shot? Can you do can you do hello, hello? Hello, hello. Oh, yours is the best. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, so the reason I love it. It's amazing. So the reason we started like that is that that is the start of the opera Der Kaiser von Atlantis. It is also the start of our adaptation of the book of the opera Der Kaiser von Atlantis, and our book is called Death Strikes: The Emperor of Atlantis. Um, this uh, this hello hello is a theme. It's a motif throughout the book. Uh, every conversation almost starts with with this ridiculous hello hello, and it's really the sort of signature <laughs> catchphrase. Um, I'll just sort of go ahead and start and give you the like you know overview of what this book is. So in 1943, there was a concentration camp in the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia back then called Terezin or in German Tierenstadt. And this was the, the camp where the Nazis sent artists and intellectuals and composers and musicians because they wanted to be this, this, uh, this camp for show to show the world that like, oh, we're treating the Jews. Okay. They can make art here. They can make theater. They can, you know, uh, you know, record music. Uh, but really, it was just a concentration camp like everything else. But there were these two uh, uh, creators, uh, Peter Keen, who was a poet and an illustrator, and Victor Ullman, who was a, an avant-garde composer, who got together to make this brilliant, satirical, science fiction, fantasy, zombie opera, an opera, uh, really satirizing and lampooning authoritarianism and war uh, in just this fascinating way. And so we've taken this opera and uh we've turned it into a graphic novel 80 years later and that is where we are um story-wise it imagines a world where atlantis never sank and instead became this superpower that declares war everyone you know just war everywhere and one day the emperor of atlantis who lives in this tower uh where he never interacts with anybody else except through this this radio declares all-out war everyone against everyone and at that point the grim reaper Death himself says, uh-uh, I'm going on strike, creating a world of the of the living dead. And that's kind of where the story kicks off. Patrick, what did I miss in my introduction? I'm going to ask the first <laughs> question there. What did I miss? <laughs> I think you hit it all. I mean, one of the interesting things about this project is not only is it a, a fascinating sort of sci-fi story by itself, it's interesting. Um, it's wild. Uh, there's a, a bunch of genres represented, but it's also got this incredible backstory. You know, the the creators um, themselves, Peter Keen and, and Victor Ullmann, uh, had uh, fascinating lives. And the way that this opera was produced is is so informative as to what the opera is about. Um, so there's just a lot of layers that you can appreciate it on. Certainly, a lot of layers that brought us into the project. 
Yeah. And I should note that sadly, you know, neither of the creators survived to see it performed. So they wrote it in 1943. It was rehearsed in 43 and 44 in the camp. And then they were both sent to their deaths in Auschwitz. And this opera disappeared for decades and only reemerged in the 70s. Uh, it's been performed a handful of times, but this will be really the first uh, attempt to bring this story to a mass audience outside of the very slim uh, but respectable you know, portion of the population that listens to German language, modern operas. With, with that in mind, so, I mean, yeah. How is it taking a, an opera and translating it into a, you know, graphic novel comic book format? Oh, you're just jumping ahead in our questions, Sam. We've got a whole structure <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, we were sticking to the straight stick script, man. You oh, know what? I think I'm going to, I'm going to refine, I'm going to refine this one because it, it, it is like, first of all, we'll say it's difficult. Um, but it started in a lot of ways, Dave, if I'm not mistaken, you know, with the research, with the opera itself, uh, you did uh, just a tremendous amount of research getting, getting this project up and running before we even met. Um, can you kind of tell me about that research? Kind of walk me through, was there a point where you thought, okay, I've, I've done enough to get started or I've done enough to move to the next phase. Like, what was that like when you were getting going? Oh, all right. So I'm going to just sort of jump back a long ways back. So I discovered this opera and I say discovered it because I found it on a shelf of a Best Buy in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, back in the late nineties. <laughs> you know, this is not something I found on the internet. This is something that I just sort of happened upon by chance looking around as a teenage mall rat for some punk rock and just this, this collection, um, called, uh, the music survives. Uh, with a cover, which I would later discover was designed by Art Spiegelman, um, you know, of mouse uh, fame. And I was just like, what is this? And I grabbed it and I looked at it and I brought it home and I got very excited about it. I went and obtained the full opera and I just became really, really obsessed with it because this is not what you expect from an opera. You expect Vikings and horns. You expect, you know, period pieces and things that last six hours uh, with long intermissions. Super convoluted love stories where this guy's yeah. killing this guy, but they're in love with those guys. Yeah. Yeah. You don't expect something so modern, so contemporary and so biting as this like science fiction fantasy story. Um, and I think I always felt like it should be a graphic novel that it really lent itself the types of characters, the type of story, the, the conciseness of the opera. But beyond that, Peter Keene, the librettist, who was like in his like early twenties at the time was also an illustrator. Like he drew, he wrote, he drew, he wrote. You'll see portraits of people, you know, who, who lived on the concentration camp and nine out of 10 of times he was the one who drew. And, you know, hundreds and hundreds of his, of his paintings and, and illustrations survived, uh, even though he didn't. And so I like to think that had he survived, had he gone on, he may have come to the U.S. and found a career in comics, that this would have been a natural medium for him. And that maybe inside of his head as he was writing this, maybe there was the beginnings of something that would have, like, maybe translated over to another medium. Uh, but yeah, I did do a tremendous amount of research for this. <laughs> um, I always thought it was uh, it was going to be a graphic novel. Um, I think that there's an interview with me in the Phoenix New Times in 2001. Uh, there was a story about this coffee shop I hung out with, and there's like a line about me talking about wanting to make this opera into a comic. Like, and it just took me this long to to really work on it, and that's just mostly because I was, you know, I hadn't met Patrick yet, and so it took a long time to really get the entire creative team together. 
That's so. not the truth. I'll, I, when we get to the question about that, maybe I'll I'll, I'll delve into it a little bit more. <laughs> well, I am curious. You know. Like you said, you were working on this in two thousand one, which I'll be honest, I didn't know. Like I knew that you I didn't. Had this I wouldn't in say head. working. I wouldn't say working oh, okay. on it unless you mean. Me sitting at a coffee shop going, this would be really cool. I'm going to do this one day. Thinking about so, it. Doing think, the thought work. Thinking about it. Getting, you know, deciding that in my life at some point, just like maybe there was a bucket list that I wrote it on or something. I don't know. But it's been in my head for a very long time that this should be a comic. So when did the when did the title come up? When Death Strikes is the only part of the title that you kind of appended onto it. You know, the, the Emperor of Atlantis is the English translation of Der Kaiser von Atlantis. Like, when did the title come up? Okay. So the opera is actually, you know, called Der Kaiser von Atlantis. One of the documents calls it Der König von Atlantis or the King of Atlantis. But it also has this subtitle that says Der Kaiser von Atlantis or uh, Death Abdicates or Death, you know, Steps Down. Death Abdicates. I don't know what anybody knows that word unless you've been watching The Crown, right? Like, you know that the the king abdicated in the first half of the the 20th century. And I was like, Abdicates, that's not going to work as a title. Um, But Peter Keene actually did refer to the opera as Death Abdicates. He never had, you know, Der Kaiser von Atlantis in in his version of the libretto. And so I was thinking it through. This is actually a story about death making a political decision, him stepping down to force, you know, in protest of what has been decided. And because it was a lot of work for him and he didn't want to do it anymore and he thought it was just unfair. And so I was like, death strikes is what came to mind. Like death going on strike, it's it goes with the wordplay that's throughout the graphic novel and throughout the opera, this double meaning of death going on strike. But death coming back and striking down the Emperor of Atlantis. So it has this double meaning. Um, And I thought it would work well with comic audiences. I think people are familiar with this kind of turn of phrase with death. Uh, It made it for like a nice cover. And it also changed the focus. So when you say the Emperor of Atlantis, a lot of people, you know, with the actual opera, think about the Emperor as the central character. And he's really not. It really is death. Death is, is at least one of the main central characters in this. And I really wanted to focus on him. I would say the that was an easy decision to make. The harder decision to make was trying to decide whether it was the Emperor of Atlantis or the Kaiser of Atlantis, because I had always thought of it as the Kaiser of Atlantis. But again, nobody knows what abdicates means. It's 2023. How many people know what a Kaiser is? Maybe people know what a Kaiser role is. Um, the Kaiser role <laughs> of Atlantis doesn't really work. Um, and so even though I my original inclination was to go with the Kaiser, we went with the Emperor of Atlantis because it made more sense. And there's such a subtle distinction too, between the Koenig, which is the King, the King of Atlantis, the emperor of Atlantis to have two such very different connotations, right? Like an emperor leads an empire, right? An emperor is just that much more removed. An emperor might be the emperor over a King who's part of his empire, you know? Uh, So you have to honor that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you guys had, you know, one of the things if we're if we're sticking the script is that you guys how how do you guys get into how do you guys get into comics like how do you guys like form your partnership together and kind of like come together over this mutual love of comics? Oh, for the for the sake of editing, if you need to, I will also re-ask the question, Patrick. How did you get into comics? How did I get into comics? How did you get into comics? 
So, you know, I, I grew up uh, primarily in, in the Midwest, right? The Great Lakes states and, and where I'm from, you know, there aren't a whole lot of art professionals. There aren't publishers around here for the most part. So growing up, comics were a thing that you read and they were things that you collected. They weren't things you made. Um, and uh, I got out of undergrad and I was an oil painter and I was in this period of life where I was really floundering, trying to figure out why I was painting at all and, and if I had anything to say. And I came across this book called Genius by uh, Christian and Siegel. Um, Siegel and Christian, I guess, is the better credit. And it was, you know, it was a comic about squandering your potential and being okay with not reaching the highest level. And it had a bunch of other things going on too. And, and I was looking at it and it was really speaking to me uh, thematically. And I was looking at it and I was like, I could do this. Like I could, I could draw these pages. These are not outside of my reach, you know? And as an oil painter, I'd been trained to draw, to paint from life almost exclusively. That was my whole thing was I, I paint what I see. And so inventing things out of my head was just totally alien to me. And uh, so that's what I started doing. I started working with a, a friend who had this idea for like a, a all ages kind of middle grade uh, sci-fi adventure story. And we just started trying to make it. And uh, it was just long enough ago that getting information on how to make comics like actually do it was just like it was still kind of hard uh and so it was a lot of guesswork uh you know we did two issues and partway through one of them we went to a convention and i thought oh we're not we're not doing this right like we're not doing this good enough and i had to redraw that whole issue because so i was like this could be better and then you know it just kept getting better um so that's kind of how i started getting into it um it it was really a, a kind of a hobby and a and a, a release valve for a lot of tension, and it turned into something that I could do and that I really loved doing. You know, Dave, Dave, how did you get into comics? Oh, okay. So um, I've always been a writer. Like you can you can go back and find a issue of National Geographic for kids with a review of some youth fiction book that I had, I had read and enjoyed when I was like nine years old or something like that. You know, I was wrote for the local kids newspaper back then. And I wrote a lot of stories. Um, but I think my first interaction with comics was around my bar mitzvah, uh, which obviously was around 13 there. My dad was in a Dungeons and Dragons club and invited all of his uh, fellow D and D people they didn't know that you're supposed to give like a check for money to people for their apartment. So that's what kids want is a check that will go into their college fund or they can use to buy stuff. And instead they all bought me a different volume of ElfQuest. Uh, and so oh, wow. uh, I ended up with this huge stack of ElfQuest and that was really my first interaction. And I would say that like, just a sort of side note here, that one of the really gratifying things about this project that feels very full circle for me is that when I got to sign preview cards at San Diego Comic-Con at the Dark Horse booth, the peonies were right after me. Like they're on Dark Horse now too. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like, this is making 13-year-old version of me happy. This is making 20-year-old version of me happy. This is making 30-year-old version of me happy. This is amazing. Um, but I didn't really do much with comics after that until my early 20s um, when I started discovering literary comics. So, you know, your mouse, uh, a lot of the R. Crumb stuff. Uh, but then a lot of the more, you know, crossover Alan Moore, Neil Gaiman kind of stuff. And that really got me going and thinking more about all of the possibilities. Um, 
you know, then later on, uh, you know, I was a reporter in San Diego for a while, which gave me the great opportunity of getting in to San Diego Comic-Con every year for free with the golden ticket that is the press badge. I'm sure Sam is familiar with how amazing this press badge is. It gets you into everything. Never have to wait in a Hall H line ever. It's amazing. Uh, and so that just meant that every year for about a decade, I got to go and really see the full breadth of what is out there in the world. And from a very you know, different perspective than a lot of creators until now, where I'm getting to finally jump that fence. Uh, I'm enjoying being a comics creator now, but I do miss that golden ticket badge, let me tell you. <laughs> Pretty sweet. <laughs> well, what about, you know, what, what about Alaska Robotics Comics Camp? That is where we met. So we, Patrick and I met in 2018 at Alaska Robotics Comic Camp. Patrick, can you explain to the audience what Alaska Robotics Comics Camp is? And I just want to apologize in advance to Pat Race for an Aaron at Alaska Robotics who are going to get a flood of applications after we, we talk about this. Um, yeah, this Patrick, thing is what is amazing. Alaska Robotics? It's so unique. So Alaska Robotics is a, an art gallery and comic shop in Juneau, Alaska. And it's run by those gentlemen, Pat and Aaron. And uh, they'd been bringing friends up to Juno in the comics community for years. Be like, you have to come to the city. It's beautiful. It's Alaska. It's amazing. And uh, eventually they decided to formalize it. And it became this, uh, what they call a mini convention. But it's it's similar to every small convention you're going to go to. Um, and then, uh, so everybody comes up for a convention. They run it for a day in Juneau. They also do dozens and dozens of school visits around the Juneau, uh, area. So like the whole city of Juneau just floods with uh, comic creators on a, like a Thursday and a Friday, and they just kind of disperse out into the community. And then, um, there's a convention on Saturday. And then we all head out to, uh, a campground for the next three days. It's like 60 comic adjacent people and it's at all levels so when i went for the first time uh i i had just gotten an mfa in comics but i was very much a fledgling creator self-publishing everything and and nothing i did was all that good and that same year like you know molly ostertag went and i was like do they think that that's the level that i'm on because they've made a mistake they've made a they've made an error you know and um but no no they they intentionally really mix it up so i mean you're rubbing shoulders with some of my absolute favorite comic creators of all time like jen wang was there vera brosgill ryan north tony cliff you know uh, Raina telgemeier all go to juno for this show and then you kind of go for this cool camp thing and and uh, there are also some animators, comic journalists, it turns out, that were going. Dave, how did you find out about this camp? Because I was I was looking at, like, you know, uh, Vera Brosgill, and I was like, oh, she's in Alaska, so I think I'm going to try to go. How did you get yes. there? So my day job is at the nonprofit Electronic Frontier Foundation. So we're civil liberties nonprofit based in San Francisco that fights for people's Digital civil liberties as technology advances society. That's my little blurb about it. Um, but we actually, you know, as a non-entertainment uh, uh, company, still have a significant number of fanboys and fangirls and fan people out there. And so I was wandering around Comic-Con one year, and there was a dude, this red-headed, bearded dude at a booth wearing an EFF shirt, uh, one of our classic ones, too. And I was like, hey, you've got my shirt. 
And he's like, yeah. And it turned out it was Pat Race from Alaska Robotics. And he was just a huge fan. And he was a member of our organization. And I was like, we got to figure out a way to collaborate. We'll figure out something. Uh, maybe you could do some graphics for us, you know, for our anniversary. And so we exchanged contact details. And just by virtue of following him and being on the mailing list, um, I saw they were having this camp. And at this point, I really wanted to figure out how to do this comic. I had no idea where to start. And it sounded like this camp would be a good place to connect with artists who might be able to help uh, or at least give guidance on what to do. Um, and then in exchange, I could, you know, do a digital security training, like how to protect your privacy or talk about contemporary issues. And that would be my con contribution uh, back to the overall, um, uh, you know, experience. And uh, I think I can remember very particularly where we met that light last that night. Uh, sorry, that, during that event, Patrick, I think it was maybe the last night we were there and we were in the dark on the patio. I think you were drinking a bottle of beer or something. <laughs> um, and I was like trying to figure out how much it would cost to get somebody to draw a couple of pages. And you were just like, hmm, uh, you know, maybe this much. And I was like, oh, I can afford that. And, you know, that was 2018. Um, and that's how we met. Uh, but at that point, at that point, we weren't even discussing whether you would be involved in this at all. You were just no. some dude who was just like, I have a few minutes to describe this process and how much it would cost to do it. Yeah, you know, and I had just, I had just, like I said, gotten an MFA in comics. So I felt very educated. You know, I was so, you know, so qualified. But, you know, hearing the story of the opera, you know, it really like it just pinged off so many points because like I'm interested in history and it was there and I obviously I love genre work. I love comics and it was there and it's just such a unique, interesting thing. I was just so excited to see when you got a hold of me again in 2020, I was so excited that it was moving ahead. And I had all these people in mind who were like, oh man, this guy would be great for it. And I'm, you know, what if this person did it? This is such a cool project. <laughs> Uh, just to be pedantic, I'm going to just say it was 2019, okay, and I'll tell, right. you, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. So uh, it, I'm going to be like Patrick is asking me this question, Dave. What happened? How did you do? do you know, blah blah blah. I'm going to answer that question that you didn't ask me uh, in this uh, dynamic duo interview. Um, so in 2020, I was going to be taking a sabbatical from work. And so I was going to be able to take three months off paid. And I was like, I want to work on a project. And I was like, this is the, the graphic novel I'm going to work on. I'm going to dedicate that time to this. And I started writing up this proposal for it and a script, and I wasn't sure what to do next with it. And so I ended up messaging uh, Derek Robertson from uh, Transmetropolitan, the boys, we had communicated because he lives in Napa and Transmetropolitan had been a huge influence on me, but also a huge influence on basically everybody who works at EFF and was trying to build connections. And I sent him my proposal and he sent me some really great but tough feedback. And the number one piece of feedback he said is that you're not going to get anywhere unless you have an artist on board for this. Like sometimes you can get by with just a script and, you know, a writer, but you need to go find an artist. And I had no idea how to find an artist. And somebody had recommended I try um, uh, the, the website cartoonistofcolor.org.com, one of the two. Uh, one of those will work if you look at it online. And the other was queer cartoonists, again, .com.org. I'm not going to Google it right now. Uh, but one of those two. And that's where I happened to cross um, this artist named Ezra Rose. Um, Ezra is incredible. Uh, 
they uh, are Jewish, they are trans, they are anti-fascist, and they are very into uh, Jewish mysticism. And they had already drawn versions of skulls and, you know, old radio objects, all these things. I was like, this has to go into our book and contacted Ezra about the project. And Ezra was really interested, but Ezra said, yeah, I can draw some designs for you. I can draw some illustrations for you, but I am not the type of person who can generate a hundred pages of sequential art. That is just not in my skill set. Would you be open to a collaboration? And I was like, okay, well now I need to go find another artist to help with it. And I'm like, Hey, Hey guy that I met at Alaska robotics on the patio and asked questions about this a year and a half ago. You got any ideas? And Patrick is like recommending this person and that person. He's given me this list of like eight people and I'm reaching out to them. And uh, I was doing these paid tryouts where you I would pay people to, to draw a single page and we would evaluate it. And eventually I was like, well, Patrick, why are you recommending like all these other people and not like volunteering to try out yourself? I mean, it's you can pay you a little bit of money. What's what's the shot? And then Patrick was finally sure I'll do it. So Patrick, why is it that you didn't like recommend yourself just right <laughs> off the bat? Why didn't you just save me the trouble of, of doing these tryouts and just volunteer? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, you know, comics is relatively small and I try to keep my friendly relationships friendly and, and I felt like um, I knew a lot of people who really were uh, phenomenal artists and would be so good for this project. I mean, that being said, once you'd sent me a script, I'd already picked out a page where I was like, I know what this one looks like. I already know what this one looks like. I would love to do this one. But, you know, I wanted to check with this person and that person and this person uh, before I, you know, volunteered. If I ever volunteered, I'm not sure I would have if you didn't ask me. Um but I was really, really glad you did because there was that one page and the approximate layout made it into the final book of death, kind of like racing across the spread on his white horse, collecting souls with elephants and ponies and tanks. And, and I was, I was just sure that I knew already what this looked like. Um, yeah. So I was, I was really pleased that you asked me to do it. And I was even more pleased that you were like, that you were like, yeah, let's do this together. Like, are you, are you good to do this pitch? And I was like, yes, yes, let's do the rest of it. <laughs> let's do it all. So Patrick, in illustrating this, I gave you all these designs from Ezra. I gave you all this art from Peter Keen. And I said, you need to put this all into it. So what are the challenges of having Keen and Ezra's artwork that you have to base your illustrations on? And what are the advantages of having that kind of place to start? So the the biggest challenge is the first one is just intimidation, right? Because, you know, Keen was an incredible artist to begin with. And and knowing that we're going to reference Keen's work, like knowing explicitly, you'd already picked out several panels where you're like, I'd like this to be in there. I'd like something like this to be in there. And knowing that we were going to reference that, that was just being intimidating. And Ezra's also phenomenal, right? So like, I can't, I know I can't match what Ezra does exactly. That's just we, you know, we're two different people. It was never going to happen. Uh, so finding like m my visual voice using those keys, that was, that was interesting. And I've never done anything like that before. I'd never worked off somebody else's character designs. Um, so I, 
I, I had to like figure out what that meant and what it looked like. And it's hard enough when you're doing your own character designs, you draw the characters over and over and over, and eventually they come to look like themselves. Um, and so you have to do the same process, but with a, something you didn't design. And I, I remember in when we were doing some of the initial sketches, I had kind of like misunderstood what I was seeing. And there were parts where uh, I had like just sort of assumed that like life, for example, one of the characters, their skin was just like porcelain white. Like they were like kind of otherworldly. And uh, as it was like, no, 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 they're wearing like, like arm, like leggings thing. Like these are torn off and like, they have just like regular skin. I was like, oh, oh, oh. Like now that you say that I can see it. Um, so finding those little things, um, and then having, you know, the confidence to simplify in places where I knew I was going to be drawing this again and again, and I needed it to be like a little bit more simple than it, than it had already been drawn um, uh, without feeling like I've bailed on the character design. And really it's, you know, the, the loudspeaker, which is a radio that threads throughout the entire book. That's the one where I really, really simplified the design um, so that uh, I could draw from different angles and, and, not, and not get caught up on it. Um, so it, it was, it was both things. It was really challenging, but it was also extremely helpful because I had things to go back on, you know, and I think some of the, most of the characters, um, you know, you, you, you draw them till you find them. And then some of the characters really became other people as I drew them. Um, the emperor is the, the number one is probably the most different from what Ezra handed me, um, which, which they is wearing the same which... outfit, but like. Older. They've got the same outfit. They've got the same comb over. Uh, in the book, you'll see Ezra's design of of uh, the Emperor, and then it'll be slightly different than Patrick's. And my one of my favorite parts of the process is when Patrick sends us all these sketches of his version of the Emperor, and there's one that he drew that he wrote, uh, is this too Brando? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it was like, this is old Brando? And it was like, you know, because he thought it was too Marlon Brando. And it's funny enough, because that's the version that ultimately I think ended up developing in here is a much more crotchety version, a much an older version than was originally imagined, but it works. Yeah. Um, Speaking of flesh or fleshlessness, uh, uh, Patrick, how glad are you that Ezra did not give death feet, bony feet in this book (laughs) that you don't have to draw over and over again. You know, and like, I love the way that so the death the character terminates at the ground in just a cloud of black smoke. I did not I did not want to draw a bunch of bony feet. I would have drawn some boots, but that black <laughs> smoke was such a useful was such a useful device because you could put character into it, you could put emotions into it, it could spike up when death is angry, it can languish and get smaller when death is, you know feeling low and trailed behind him when he was active. He's riding a horse and stuff. So I was really, really pleased that that was something we got to do. Um, you know, this whole book is in ink wash and the ink wash that I approached it with was a little bit um, closer to like what you would do um, with watercolor. So it was a little bit more like doing a full watercolor book just in monochrome. Um, <laughs> so I was very pleased but there weren't feet. It was hard to draw lots of bony hands. You know, there's nothing keeping your thumb attached to your hand except for the flesh. <laughs> so when, you, when you're trying to do dramatic hand poses and that thumb's just like drifting off into space, you know, you're, you just hope that people will understand that you've done it. You've done it justice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, 
So I would like to jump because I know we we've got to you know get through this podcast in under four hours. I think um, for CBR, <laughs> CBR said you can do this as long as you want, um, but I think four hours is probably too long um, for this. Um, for those who who are are not able to see this visually, uh, Sam kind of shook his head like maybe it's okay to go four hours, you know, if it's good enough. Um, but I, I do want to jump ahead to what I think is one of the most exciting parts of this project that I don't think a lot of comics get to do, and that is we did field research on this. Yeah. Um, originally in 2020, I had planned uh, this like intense. Uh, trip that would have started in Amsterdam and gone through Poland and Czech Republic and Vienna and Switzerland and all over the place, any, any country where there was some sort of connection. Um, and then, you know, something happened in 2020 that just made me cancel the whole trip. You, I, you know, it's not really worth going into. I mean, it was the pandemic, right? Like I, we had to cancel it. All my hotel plans, everything very well planned trip. Um, I can send you my itinerary if you want, but it's a real bummer. <laughs> Um, but then, um, you know, throughout 2020, we worked on this throughout 2021, we worked on this. And then in the beginning of 2022, we signed with, uh, Burger Brooks and I was like, Patrick, pack your bag, buy your tickets. We are going to the Czech Republic. Um, and so we went and we went to Prague and we went to Terezin and, uh, you know, to gather, information to enrich our understanding to talk to experts um, but also to grab a lot of images that could be make it into the book and so uh patrick how did visiting the czech republic prague terezin how did that impact your process well one of the things that it did was really nail down the visual language of what atlantis was going to look like right um Terezin, I knew from the virtual tour that you can, anybody can go do. If you go to the, the website, you can do a virtual tour and go through the streets, you know, point by point, click your arrows, like Google Street View. Um, and I knew it had a lot of these very specific architectural, deep, architectural details that um, were, were, were universal. Almost every building had them. Um, so I knew that that kind of thing I wanted to incorporate into, um, into the design of the city, but what I didn't somehow I missed the strange shape of the city. The city started as this military fortification. So it has all of these pointed bulkheads, these star shaped bulkheads that are meant to like resist invasion. Um, and as soon as we started to see like these larger shapes and like be placed in that city, it was like, Oh, this is the city. Like we're going to take this city and we're going to control T and we're going to scale that sucker out to the size of a full city. These walls, these points, these kind of like um, terracotta roofs. Um, we're going to bring all of these elements in and that's going to be sort of the basis of what Atlantis, Atlantis is going to be so that when our characters are walking through Atlantis, in some ways, they're also walking through Terezin. And um, of course, we had to, you know, sci-fi it up a little bit because it's this like, uh, you know, it's it's in a world where Atlantis never sinks. So there's also contemporary towers and uh, uh, drones and things like that. But uh, a lot of it will harken back to... Uh, the, the architecture of Prague, the architecture of Terezin itself. And if you're really familiar with Terezin, you'll see places in Terezin in the book. You know, that that was a huge part of, because um, at that point we were working on thumbnails. So some of that, those, those finer, grittier things um, hadn't been decided yet. So that trip really solidified those things. Um, 
what, what were your impressions of Terrazine, Dave, while we were there? Oh, you know, this has been a place that's been in my imagination for decades, and I had just never had a, a chance to visit. And so it just blew my mind showing up because, you know, this is a town. I mean, it's essentially a town. Like, it's like, imagine like a downtown small town that has a wall around it and imagining thousands, way too many people than should be in there imprisoned in here trying to get, you know, that make the most out of life through art and other creativity. But it's parts of it are so very well preserved. We got to go and, you know, see the bunks where, you know, Peter Keen and Ullman would have, have, uh, uh, stayed. We got to see um, the archive there and dig around in in you know these binders full of his artwork. Um, one of my favorite details that made it into the book is that there's this scene um, with an executioner and a and a, a prisoner, and the executioner is unable to execute this prisoner as much as he tries. But the the prison cell is actually modeled off of a prison cell at Terrazine that was you know, prior to World War II was actually used to house and imprison uh, the guy who shot Archduke Franz Ferdinand kicking off World War I. And so the, these are just some of these like incredible details in there. Um, the impressions though, overall, I mean, it was very sad, but very fascinating. But then it's also just a really strange head trip because, you know, as I talk about in the essay in the back, like modernity is like flowing into this. So we are in the the hotel, the one hotel in Terezin, it's where we stayed the night. This is also where the Nazis lived, <laughs> like the Nazi officers lived. It's now a hotel. And we're sitting there eating our Czech food, uh, you know, in the restaurant. And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, Patrick, look. And there is a cat robot, like one of these things that you see in Japan that just rolls out <laughs> of nowhere to bring our beers to us. And I'm like, how did this robot make it to Terezin? And there's also like an escape room there now. Um, one of the biggest, I guess, appropriate or ironic, I don't know what the right word for it is, is that, as you probably know, Czech Republic is landlocked. So Terezin never could have been sunk into the sea because there's no ocean there. And there's also at Terezin a museum to Czech's only, Czech Republic's only pirate ship. Um, and again, there is no ocean. <laughs> so um, they somehow have this pirate ship because some Czech dude went off and became a pirate. And then these people brought this ship back to Terezin of all places. Um, so it was really, really a weird, strange, but very moving experience. But so was Prague because Peter Keen had also lived in Prague prior to being um, uh, sent to Terezin. He'd been an art student there going to art school. He was thrown out of art school for being Jewish. Patrick and I tracked down the dormitory where he lived as a student, and it ha just happens to be a youth hostel and a hostel and a dorm still. It's this huge thing. And we stayed there for many nights um, and ate food in the cafeteria. It was this uh, – Patrick, can you explain what this facility looks like? Because it was really uh, impactful so on us. Um it was such a strange experience because we, we knew that it was where Peter Keene had lived while he was in Prague going to college. And we, we, but we still didn't know really what to expect. And when we got there and we realized that it was a dorm uh, and it was a lot like the dorm that I stayed in in undergrad. It had these endless halls where all the rooms looked exactly the same. It was actually 
a maze. We we kept getting kind of lost and turned around because the, there's oh, no decoration. Oh, you had decoration. to follow these colored lines on the ground <laughs> yeah. to find your, and like on the walls to find your room. And some of it's a dorm, but some of it's a hotel hostel situation. So it's like, well, don't go into the green section. That's still a dorm. Uh, <laughs> stay in the red section. That's the hostel. And we got to our rooms, and there were two twin beds and a little kitchenette. I mean, it was a dorm room. And when you were in the main, um, the foyer set wouldn't be a foyer, I guess, main uh, entrance area, you could see on either side were these like lecture halls that that had been used when it was a more active part of the university. And it was the most bizarre experience to stand on these steps that were made of marble with all of these architectural details still intact with with college kids around you, you know, just getting ready to go out for the night and and really hammered home for me that like Peter Keene was 25 when he was when he was murdered in Auschwitz. You know, I mean, at the time that he went to Terezin, he had just basically graduated college. Like these were exactly Peter Keene's contemporaries right around the time that the history started to unfold around him. And it really it really hammered home that like these were real people having a real experience and that in many ways they were kind of unaware of the larger forces that were happening and they were trying to make their lives um, meaningful. And in all these places where they could have chosen to spare, instead they kept making things and they like, they made this opera in, in the worst possible circumstances to comment on their circumstances, even though they didn't really understand the full scope of what was happening around them. It was really affecting. It really like, it centers you in that history. And suddenly you see that like, it becomes very clear and unavoidable that history is happening around us now. Uh, it really connected me at least to the book, like in that present moment it was really interesting. Um, yeah, I had, yeah. I had a, a, sort of a, a, a similar experience, and I think you'd gone home by this point. But when mm -hmm. I actually went to go visit the school where he went, um, uh, you know, there. I mean, this was at the beginning of the of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and so the the, the art school was just covered in Ukrainian flags, and that really did give you this sense of history repeating, um, uh, you know, at the time. Yeah, Dave, how do you feel about um, talking a little bit about put, putting the book together, working with Karen and that process? Sure. Um, so, you know, we found an agent in 2021 and, we, you know, we created a, a list of people that we were going to pitch this book to. Um, I had interviewed Karen, uh, you know, like two or three years earlier when um, Nettie Okorafor's LaGuardia came out. And at the time, Karen had really articulated how she saw the connection from Will Eisner's A Contract with God and how that leads and is the same trajectory that leads to, you know, the science fiction LaGuardia book and how these are both, you know, one's a Jewish story, but they're both about immigrants. And so I was like, can we just throw, you know, Karen Berger on this list? And it was just like this long shot. Um, and then sure enough, we heard from her saying, I want to publish this book. And it wasn't like, I want to talk to you more about this, or I have questions. It was straight up. I want to publish this book. Um, and to be honest, I am not as like, um, you know, into the world of comics to really fully know Karen's entire history. Um, but Patrick, you were. <laughs> and so what, <laughs> what, what was your reaction? What was your reaction Karen when Burger's I messaged name. you? 
And oh. I said, "Oh, Karen wants to publish. Karen Berger wants to publish this book." What was what was your reaction? Well, I I remember when you when we first put Burger Books on the list of people we were we were pitching to because you know it's it, you never know, right? Like you're going to try and ask a lot of people a lot of questions, and you never know. And um, gosh, I'm pretty sure we we had a conversation. Where we were like, "Well, if Karen Berger wants it." Karen Berger is going to get it, right? Like, <laughs> we're going to give it to Karen Berger. You know, I mean, Karen's name is on, is on some of my favorite comics, just of all time. And Vertigo, which is the the imprint that she, you know, was the founding editor of and, and the voice of, obviously kind of changed the comics industry in the United States fundamentally, um, really changed the direction of what comics could do in sort of a serious artistic way. Um especially in the direct market, you know, as opposed to like the, the comics with an X, you know, Robert Crumb kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, she's also, uh, she, she edited my favorite run of Wonder Woman of all time, the George Perez, you know, run of Wonder Woman. And like, so it, it was just absolutely phenomenal and uh, mind blowing that we had a meeting, a video meeting with Karen that I took at work for some reason uh, you know, and she, the the question was not, are we going to publish this book? But when are we going to publish this book? Like, what's the timeline? What's your process? What like, and, you know, it, that conversation just absolutely blew my mind, blew my mind, shattered me to pieces. It was, I was ecstatic. <laughs> uh, so Dave, I got to know though, like, you've been a journalist for a long time, a writer forever, right? And obviously you've worked with editors, but working with an editor in this capacity is very different. Like what was the experience of working with Karen? How was it different working in this kind of comics medium than what you were used to working in? Well, the first thing is that in my career as a writer, I do not, I, I, I've never had somebody tell me to write more. Like, it's always like, this is 1,200 words. I asked for 700. Where can we cut 500 words? Karen was, like, frequently asking us to add pages to say, like, hey, you've really truncated this scene into a single page, and this is going to work better if we break this out over three pages. She was like, you know what? This could use some more narrative. We could use some more dialogue. We really need to make this character fuller. And that was a new experience for me, having somebody encouraging me and giving me permission to really expand uh, the writing and the storytelling here. And I think that this is one of the most important things I, I, I remember from this process is that I think with some editors, they wouldn't really pay much attention other than copy editing and looking for red flags. And that's it. Not really helping, you know, impress more. Um, there are other editors who would have looked at it and said like, let's just stick to the script. Let's just stick verbatim to it. Let's just do a direct transcript of the opera and put art to it. What Karen really impressed upon me is that this is not an opera with illustrations. This is a graphic novel. This needs to work as a graphic novel. This needs to work as a story and be awesome. The, the best way to honor the people whose voices were silenced is to do the best graphic novel that you can do. And you don't have to stick to it. You don't have to be reverent to it. You don't have to go with it. You just have to make it good. And, you know, and so that was really where, uh, you know, why I think the book is as strong as it is, because she really helped make sure and keep me on track. And, and whenever I felt like, oh, but, you know, this was really important. She'd be like, is it, is it important because to the storytelling or is it just important because you're feeling like, you know, you have to stick religiously to the text. 
Um, on the whole, though, so throughout this process, I've tried to tell people because you, you mentioned the Holocaust. You mentioned pe people are going to be like, think about mouse. Like they're going to think about mouse. And I try to impress upon people that this is really less Art Spiegelman and more Neil Gaiman as a story. This involves death and satire and wordplay and fantasy. And so I don't want people thinking about it. And so really, though, I mean, if you're trying to go, like, move towards a more Neil Gaiman approach, you really can't get a better editor than Karen Berger in that regard. Like, there's really there's really no other name. There's no – you write a list. It's just one name. <laughs> like, like, other than maybe Neil Gaiman himself, you know. Uh, but I don't think he has time to uh, to edit uh, first-time uh, comic, comic creators. I think, too, one of the things that, that really surprised me about the script when you first gave it to me, and I think one of the things that people will find surprising when they start reading the book, is that it's really funny. It's so funny. And even though Karen gave us permission to expand sequences and make it be the best story that it is, it's also extremely faithful in many ways to to the opera to the libretto and though some of those jokes the best ones the funniest ones the darkest ones came directly from the libretto like peter keen was a wicked funny guy and a lot of that ended up in the book um, which i think is probably going to surprise people when they hear the backstory and they hear the themes and then they crack it open and they're like oh no this is there's some good laughs in this this is pretty funny yeah. But, you know, it, ultimately, though, the opera, you know, we had three different texts or like original texts that were contradictions from each other. Each was unfinished in some way. There was no canon to necessarily work off. So we did have to make a lot of choices. But we also had to fill in a lot of holes as well. I mean, it's an opera and it's poetic. So they can do things that don't necessarily make logical sense, but they're not going to work in a graphic novel. And so Karen really helped me figure out ways to bridge some of the holes, way to fill in stuff and to build upon the narrative. One of my, uh, you know, the, the interesting anecdotes from this is that I was always really confused why there's this character of a soldier in there. Um, uh, and, you know, he's, you know, throughout the book, you know, he's, he's there, you know, representing, you know, like, you know, the soldier of conscience, uh, uh, in in the opera, but he just disappears in the fourth act. He's just, just like he's just not there in the opera, and the, and like there's this big this big like you know finale where everybody's there except for him. And I was like, where where did he go? This is a huge plot hole. What happened to him? Like, and it turns out that the reason he isn't there is because they didn't have enough actors. They didn't have enough singers to have the entire cast. So one dude was pulling double duty uh, and they just had to write the opera around it and just disappear him from the end. It's like, well, we can fix that. Like that's something that we can fix narratively. We can put him back in there. We can give this character closure that didn't, he didn't have the original opera on a resource level. Not, you know, now we have more resources. We can put him back in. You know, and to that point, so much of the opera, like as far as what's described as the set, you know, is, is really a black curtain. You know, I mean, it's it's life and death, singing songs to each other and kind of joking around a, a bench. Like uh, a bench. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like an empty stage. And then like the emperor a has desk. like a chair <laughs> yeah, with a weird like radio thing, like a sci fi radio thing. And um, but there's so much implication about what's happening in the world. There's so much, um, you know, the songs are are 
alluding to what their environment would be. And that's one of the things we got to play with is actually, you know, visualize those things. You know, we got to, there's a scene where um, life and death are turn into salesmen and they're trying to sell more days to people because days like have just become so miserable. Nobody wants to live longer. They're trying to offload all the days they have. And we got to, you know, visualize that. I mean, it's, it's there in the opera. There's a song They're they're bantering about it, but we got to, you know, put them, <laughs> put little uh, infomercial headsets on them and make it seem like they're, they're trying to sell a, a sham. Wow. Um, we got to play a lot of games that way that were really, really fun and really um, kind of filled out the world at the opera. You know, they wrote to their limitations, like having the, the, the guy pull double duty. And they also didn't have much room in the way of props. I mean, what were they going to do? So they wrote to those limitations and we got to kind of expand past that and visualize a lot of the things they implied, which is really great. But it was also important to make sure that we maintain some of that as well. So the entire second chapter of the story is all set in one room and it's in the emperor's prison cell. And whereas we could have like done jump cuts to like the rest of Terezin to build out this world, we're like, no, they did this brilliant thing where they built the world between a conversation between a dude and a radio. Let's stick with that. Let's make it visually interesting to be in this claustrophobic cell that makes people feel like the isolation, but still do that kind of world building, even though later in the book, we will go to places that they couldn't have gone in the original opera. I'm curious, you know, through the, how, how have your thoughts on what the book should be changed since you first started thinking about it as a graphic novel back in say, we'll say 2001 and, and, once we actually started uh, actualizing it, putting it on pages and seeing things come out, did your thoughts on like what it should be, how it should be change? So I, over the years I've gone through like sticking, you know, very verbatim to the text to like expanding it into like an action film, like to sort of thing. Like I was like, let's do like 10, 10, 10 comic series and we'll add all this stuff and we'll just very loosely stick to the original story. Um, but as it came to like actually putting it together, I was like, you know what? This is so good. Like why, why veer that far from it? Let's stick to it. But then also being like, well, once I sat down and tried to do it verbatim, realizing, well, this is not going to work either. This is going to be, um, uh, impenetrable to some people. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever read like Art Spiegelman's adaptation of uh, The Wild Party, this like poem about a really crazy party. And it's like a novel thing to read, um, but it is a little bit hard because it's all like old timey 1920s language uh, from it. And you're not necessarily getting that deep into it. Um, and I also went and I reviewed um, some of, some of Pete Craig Russell's adaptation of operas, which are very faithful, but I also, you know, uh, I very much respect Pete Craig Russell. He's great, but you know, I struggle a little bit with like the magic flute. Um, and that's just because I'm not an opera, quite the opera fan that the book is, is really meant for. Um, so that's the sort of thing that changed over time. Um, I think one of the big things that did change and, was the dynamic of these two characters, the soldier and the worker in this book. Uh, these are like the two main human characters who are from opposite sides of this war and um, come to build a really human connection with each other once they realize they can't kill each other. And in the... Um, 
uh, through trial and error, realize that they can't kill each other. <laughs> like, let's just put it like that. Um, in the opera, this is like an old, an old soldier and like a teenage girl, like in the original opera. And it really doesn't read well in 2023. Um, it's a very like old timey kind of relationship. Um, you know, especially with the violence involved and the power dynamics. And I was like, you know what? I want to update this. I want to stick. We didn't change much of the dialogue or like the, the structure of what happens in that scene, but we wanted these characters to have deeper backstories to have more agency and just be like, not just archetypes and stand-ins for humanity, but actual people. Um, And so, you know, the soldier, Pretty much the same. The main changes we made to him is that we made him a medic, not just a, a, a mil- soldier, but an army medic. And I thought that really played to this irony of death and life throughout this. Like, I always feel like the idea of an army medic is like this, like, like, con- like, this, like, um, oxymoron, you know, like somebody who's in a force that is designed to destroy, whose one job is not to, is to help people live. And, that, and so I wanted to maintain that irony. Um, and then I wanted the, the other character to not be like some helpless farm girl, but to be like a worker, somebody who is, you know, um, you know, coming from a, a more hardened background and have a lot more, um, uh, you know, more aggression to them in a, in a way. Um, and then I was looking at like, well, what can I do with these two characters? Can I gender flip them? Can I make the soldier a female and the worker, you know, a male? What, what can I do with it? And especially since, I, you know, I was thinking about this a lot because so many people who contributed to this project, who helped us and guide us, are either trans or non-binary people. And it was really important to me that this be a book that is not just like, you know, uh, you know, you know, straight heteronormative Jewish people look at and see themselves in the book. I wanted other people to be able to see themselves in the book, particularly all these people who helped us and advised us and mentored on this. And so, um, uh, you know, I had uh, some sensitivity readers and consultants that I was talking to about what can we do in this section? Like, how can we adjust this? And one of them suggested like, hey, go take a look at this figure from the past named Magnus Hirschfeld, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, who was a Jewish physician who uh, was one of the you know leading specialists in uh, you know what was not known then as like LGBTQ studies, but it was, you know, uh, looking at, tra- you know, uh, I think he had coined the term transvestites, which you don't use anymore, but he was the one who had really started creating a body of work about gay people, trans people, and had built this huge library in Germany of all these science texts and analytical texts. And the Nazis destroyed it. Like, they totally destroyed it. And I was like, this fits well into this overall idea of this book, raising up censored voices. And particularly, you know, Here's a Jewish person whose voices were censored. We also live in a time where uh, LGBTQ comics creators are seeing their works banned uh, across the country. And, um, you know, this book we're writing here could end up being banned across the country, you know, by Moms for Liberty and other groups. And so I was like, you know what? This really makes sense. This really makes sense. We we plotted him in there. Um, and it just turned out that he had a companion uh, named Li Shu uh, Song, who was from... Uh, China, and we're like, well, we can we can slot slot you know basic character off this, and you know I think that's where we started from, Patrick. Um, and I mentioned in our in our essay on it that that's where we started from. But at this point, I feel like that character 
of all the characters in the book, it's really the one that took on their own life and just became their own own thing with their own personality that got kind of got away from me uh, and is maybe <laughs> one of the most strongest, interesting characters in the book. It, well, part of that, I think, part of where that vocalness comes from is the inclusion of additional poetry from Peter Keene, right? Um, you've you've cast the that character as like... Um, an aspiring poet, even though their whole life has been working in a factory, building bombs um, and fighting. Um, and the, the poetry you've, you've brought in is some of Peter Keene's. And so Keene's sensibility ends up in that character, which um, includes a certain level of moroseness, a certain level of bitterness, but also just like a, a, a very romantic, poetic spirit. So there, it's both things kind of live there, right? Like somebody who a is, little gothy. I would say I would say gothy, it's a little, a little, a little, a little gothy. <laughs> yeah, a little moody, you know. Uh, but both things live in that character, right? Where, where they they're so disillusioned with the way the world is, and they're shocked to find out that it could be a different way, um, you know. Which is which is another theme throughout the book that the world doesn't have to be this way. Um, that it became this way and that it, it could be something else. Um, and I think that character in particular, like speaks to that, that desire and that need of rebuilding so, the world. So we are getting to the three hour and 50 minute mark of this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to sort of segue uh, to, 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 you know, w looking forward, like where we are sure. now and looking forward and, you know, one of the things that's always interested me about you is that you're not just a, a, a comic artist. You actually teach this to other people. And I remember that, you know, actually through the course of building this book, you went through kind of like, this was kind of a side thing to you. And now it's kind of your main thing is teaching students. And so can you yeah. tell me how working on a comic like this has changed how you interact with, with young comic artists and students? It's, it's really, really, for one thing, it adds a little bit of validity to the stuff that you say, because it's easy to get in class and be like, do this and they're like who are you who are you to tell me to do this <laughs> you know and like nobody's that challenging but you know when you when you ask people to to push outside of their comfort zone and try things they've never tried before and you can you can say like hey i know you need to clean up your thumbnails because i had an editor and if my editor couldn't read my thumbnails, then we had nothing to talk about, right? Like then there was no editing to be done. Your layouts need to actually have text on them and they need to like, your text needs to be integrated into this. And so it adds a little bit of like, you know, authority or, or legitimacy to it, but it also, it really deepens the well of what you can bring to the table as far as helping students develop their own voices and giving them the tools that they are going to need to be successful. Comics, especially as an industry, has changed radically in the past 20 years and, you know, even radically in the past 10 years and again here in the past five years. You know, we just keep finding new things to make the industry different. So, you know, while we can teach traditional, and we do and we should, um, because those foundational tools are so still so useful, being able to look at the industry as it is now and from from the inside, not just from like an academic perspective, like actually in it, um, that really, really has helped um, develop curriculum and coursework that's just more useful 
the worst thing you can do for a student is tell them stuff they can't use. You know, I mean, it just, it's, it sucks so much to graduate and find out that all the information you have is like five years old or 10 years old and that none of it applies anymore. So having this experience has really allowed me to, to update my approach, not my own, just my personal practice, but also like how I teach what I teach and, and what it is the students can get out of the experience. And I love teaching. So I always want, I just want to be a better teacher. So this was really great. Every, every step of the way, I learned something new that I can bring into the classroom. <laughs> so, so Patrick, where do you hope uh, this project will take your career next? Um, I love drawing and this is really, you know, I want to keep doing that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working on a couple book pitches um, with some with some other writers, some in the realm of history, like this book was, some totally, totally, totally not. Uh, nothing that you can put a name on, but... Um, maybe sometime soon. Uh, but I'd love to be able to keep doing this. I mean, in my wildest dreams when I was a kid and comics were a thing you collected, not a thing you did, the idea of having a published book with my name on it was way, way, way outside of what I could ever have imagined. Just just so far outside. And now, I mean, I can see it. It's a hardcover book. It's right over there. And it has our names on it. I mean, that's pretty phenomenal. And you know what? I'd like to do it again. <laughs> I'd like to do it again. Um, you know, nothing's guaranteed. You know, no, some people do one book and they never do another one. Uh, but I think that's that's where I'd like to go next. I want to keep working. I want to try different uh, techniques and different um, genres and just see how far we can get. You know, I, I'd love to keep telling stories. So you keep telling me though that you're really into middle grade comics, and I don't, I, I don't know how. Like we haven't yet convinced you um, that you're more <laughs> of a that we can aim for like some drawn and quarterly kind of stuff, you know, some really dark adult uh, stuff. I mean, you, but you're still on the middle grade stuff. We're we're still trying to find a find a path for I you mean, to that. Yeah, I would I would love to do middle grade stuff. I have two personal. Cause like the, the projects I've been working on, I'm the artist and there's a writer and I have two personal projects where I've written them and I applauded them and they're not ready to pitch yet. Um, but they're in the middle grade realm. Cause I, I love that work. You know, I, I love that work. Uh, Jeff Smith's bone foundational for me, uh, you know, Vera Brosgol, I mentioned who's a cartoonist I love, you know, has a lot of really great like middle grade YA work. Um, something about the cleanliness of that ink line. It's a thing I can't actually do. But it's a world I want to go live in and be like, here, take my messy stuff, you know, like, what, what can we do in it? This will be really fun. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely some place I'd like to orient back towards at some point. Uh, so hopefully we'll get there. Um, Dave, when you were so before we started working on this comic, you had written a radio play. Am I am I correct about that? Are you going to keep doing fiction work? Are you going to keep doing creative work? Well, I mean, I, to be honest, like if I could just toss my career and just write audio dramas all the time, uh, I would do that. I don't think that's a career for anybody on the planet, except for maybe like Dirk Mags is able to be able to pull that off. <laughs> uh, and I met him at Comic-Con once, by the way, a very nice guy uh, who you know responds to email. He says, great, but he is pretty much a unicorn in that, in that world. Um and I did. I did write a short story that was with that the La Jolla Playhouse turned into a Halloween um, uh, audio drama once, and so that was really quite nice. Um, 
So, so here's the thing. So I, I do want to work on fiction. I do have projects in my head, but I also have like the best day job I could ever imagine happening at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. People don't know. I get to work with like Corey Doctorow every day because he also, despite having this amazing career, also wants to work at, at EFF. He doesn't have to, but he wants to. That's how good a place it is. Um, but I, I, you know, I used to have time to work on a lot of stuff, but during the course of this project, something happened in my life. I had a child. She is two. <laughs> um, and if you have a two-year-old child, you know probably how hard it is to have a side, a second child that is a book. Um, especially this one that, uh, you know, this graphic novel, we started working on it in earnest in 2019. It's 2023 now. It will not be out till 2024. And because it's out in January 2024, that means we are probably going into 2025 before we even have to, like, worry about, like, you know, awards campaigns and stuff like that. So this is still going to take a significant chunk out of my life for a while to come. And so while I've got these things fermenting in my brain, every time I sit down to like, like I'm going to put down some words today, it's like, hey, like, you know, Dynamic Duos wants to do a podcast with you. Can you and Patrick write up a bunch of questions for yourself? And I'm like, okay, creative project. Uh, I'm going to do that and I'm going to attempt to write these questions while I've got a two-year-old uh, who, like, you know, uh, wants me to play kitchen with her, um, you know, or, you know, whatever other uh, two-year-old game. So I do, I think in the future, you will see more come for me. Uh, but considering that this project ends up being like a seven-year project, it's hard for me to commit to another seven-year project quite yet. Uh, but I have my, my, my thought on when that kid turns five – then I can start picking up like other things and I can start planning for trips to Disneyland and Universal Studios, which is the whole point of having a child in the first place. Um, yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, Sam, do you have any other questions that we like, what are any other avenues that we didn't hit? I mean, you guys hit the, you guys hit the broad strokes pretty well. I mean, the inspirations, the first meeting, the, um, you know, the doing the, doing the research, touching on the, the humor was something I really wanted to talk about. So I was glad that, that you know, you brought that up. Um, you know, you know, when we were, you know, going over stuff, you know, a lot of the notes, there was a lot of overlap. I was just trying to, trying to, I'm the, I'm the host with the ghost host with the most to, uh, kind of quote the haunted mansion. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean we've we've hit all the bro if if there's you know again readers and listeners can check this book out on January 23rd in comic book shops or in, in bookstores and on January 24th in comic shops, um, you know it's published through Dark Dark Horse Comics and Burger Books and yeah I mean Karen Berger is a legend in this industry and like you were saying really did revolutionize I think how the North American market sees the entire medium. So to get the instant green light <laughs> from her is a huge vote of confidence. And yeah, I mean, you know, I think when people think about Holocaust literature, they think, you know, you, you guys mentioned Mouse and of course, um, you know, Schindler's List being like just so dominant, you know, such a dominant film. But there really is kind of, I mean, it really is a fantasy story with a sly sense of, a, almost a defiant sense of humor in the face of death. And um yeah, I think I think people are going to check it out. So yeah, you know, again, check it out in the new year. Catch it at the end of January, guys. This has been another installment of Dynamic Duos at CBR. I'm Sam. Thanks for taking the time to sit down and talk with me this afternoon. 
Oh, thank you for having us. I really loved being here. This was super fun. This is great. I I would just sort of end that, you know, I think we live in very difficult times and people are very confused and unsure. And I hope that maybe this book might provide a way to help process things and think about things and realize that through art and comics and you know, literature that we can find ways to understand the world and also cope with it. And then if necessary, resist. <laughs>